Magic Without Fears Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Awakened and Reawakened. Spiritual Direction Within an Ecstatic Theology of Nature. Considerations in Sally McFaig's Theology of Nature and Robert Corrington's Ecstatic Naturalism. Vancouver School of Theology, 7th of December, 2004, at the University of British Columbia. Methods of Spirituality with Dr. Sally McFaig. Introduction and Methodology. This essay is concerned with spirituality, particularly the spiritual direction that humans take within a prioritized context of nature. In part, this essay is a dialogue of interpretations of nature and God, between the major texts of Robert Corrington and Sally McFaig. As this spirituality emerges from the sources I will be using, and since it in large part is concerned with the reconsideration of philosophical and theological priorities, a large part of this essay will necessarily focus on hermeneutics, the way an ecstatic theology of nature is understood, which, given a Gadamerian basis evident in both major sources, implicates application. For Gadamer, understanding is action. The two are an inseparable event along with interpretation. By names and images, all powers and forces are awakened and reawakened within the innumerable orders of nature and the world. Meaning, signification, is produced within the signs of the world, the cosmos, all that exists, is natural and there is nothing that circumscribes nature's metaphysical and material embrace. Within nature exist all semiotic orders of relevance, but also alive are those pre-semiotic orders that emerge from the underconsciousness of nature, pulsed into the realm of nature natured from the Cora by the jouissance of latent forces. A note here. On Robert Corrington to briefly further explicate Corrington's metaphysical cosmology of ecstatic naturalism, nature is understood by the categories of nature naturing and nature natured. The latter is semiotic and the former pre-semiotic. Nature, coming from psychoanalytic philosophy, has a subconscious which Corrington 
considers alongside other concepts like Cora and Jouissance to explain certain metaphysics and forms of semiosis, meaning-making. This is the base for the main idea about how nature and spirit and humanity interrelate and come to community through the semiotic orders of relevance, the signs of everything and anything at all. Names and images, orders of relevance or signs of the world, are the structures that denote and connote meaning within nature and spirit, the only pre-categories of existence. This idea that all powers and forces, all orders of relevance, are born and reborn by names and images, that is, signs, is a thesis that emerges from a long tradition of theology and philosophy, and thrives within the scientific community of thought as well. However, this exists within a naturalistic framework that does not conceive of anything that can be said to be outside of nature or in control of it. The reconceptualizing of the supernatural as orders within nature is a large component of the work of Robert Corrington, who sees nature as something that is ecstatic and that self-transcends. Thus, remaining still natural while circumscribing and including formerly supernatural categories of signs. As John Dealey notes in his foreword to Carrington's Ecstatic Naturalism, the terms of tremendous philosophic and theological economy that we gained belatedly in the 13th century from Aristotle continue today to enable our understanding of theology and philosophy. Natura naturans and natura naturata these terms, Dealey writes, were considered by Thomas Aquinas, Giordano Bruno, and Baruch Spinoza. While it was through Bruno that Spinoza learned the terms and ideas, it was from Aquinas that Bruno did. Aquinas actually stated in his Summa Theologia, even God is called by some natura naturans. This suggests that within these two categories of nature, one has been or may be equated with deity. Nature naturing, natura naturans, is the pre-semiotic from which awakening, sign meaning, names, and images occurs. Nature natured, natura naturata, is the infinite and unlimited awakening that unfolds after nature has been natured. What modernist and pre-modern, enlightenment, medieval, earlier thought has aggrandized as the supernatural is rewritten in Corrington as contained within nature. How this means that all orders of relevance, a term from Corrington used to describe anything that can be pointed to in any way, that is, anything at all, are alive or in living relationship is uncovered within the discipline of semiotics and the thought of Charles Sanders Peirce. Peirce was an American father of pragmatism, which later on he retermed pragmaticism. Corrington interprets Peirce's semiotics in the light of theology and biblical hermeneutics. See Community of Interpreters, 1987. Quote, All signs refer to at least one other sign, Corrington asserts, and exist within a sign matrix. That is, signs form living communities. It is the nature of signs as living communities, and that 
living community as nature that develops both Corrington's metaphysics and theology of ecstatic naturalism. This is also the point of dialogue between Corrington and Sally McFaig, whose writings have worked to establish and re-centralize nature in our theological and human concern. Where Corrington wants to decentralize human significance in nature, McFaig wants to refocus our hermeneutics on an increasingly troubled natural world. Approaching the task from philosophy, Corrington's writings are an effective corollary to McFaig's theology. Greatly informed by the canonical figures of Western thought and taking some of its roots for its panentheistic cosmology from Augustine. Taking my base in these exemplary prophets, I intend to show what spiritual direction may look like within such a context, such a rewritten understanding of the world and our relationship to it. Thus, the concern will be with philosophical theology and the praxis of spirituality within a new metaphysical perspective. Grace Jansen and Kevin Hart, both writers on mysticism, both strongly concerned with nature and both post-structuralists, will assist to highlight Corrington and McFaig's perspectives, setting them against the wider postmodern horizon. Jansen and Hart both see the role of semiotics in our concern for Christian theology. In her Becoming Divine, Jansen cites from Hart's Trespass of the Sign, quote, Because Christian theology regards God as a presence who, after the fall, represents himself and is in turn represented by signs, Christian theology is always a study of signs. God is for us an absent presence. And so, any theology, whatever else it is, must also be a semiology. Hart, 1989-7, cited in Janssen, 1999-187. So it is clear, whatever else may be said, that the approach I am taking in this essay is one that is current, challenging, and validated as a method by and from within the community of interpreters. 2. Nature, Spirituality, and Hermeneutics For spiritual direction within an ecstatic theology of nature to begin to permeate the mind and make sense to people today, the intertextuality of Corrington's and McFaig's work will briefly be outlined, taking each theologian's work and placing it in dialogue with each other, of course, is more than intertextuality occurring between only one or two sources, but also it is not just comparison. The nature spirituality aimed at by both writers is not to be delved by a simple compare and contrast. A more violent deconstruction is sought. Within the methodology I outlined above, a transtextuality will be undertaken where the hermeneutics of each textuality, that is, each author's works, is transgressed in a dialogue that displaces at times the primary reading of both authors and may well tentatively reach at something out of reach, a marginal reading. This marginal reading that I propose is exactly one that brings the praxis of spiritual direction into a context that emerges from my reading of both authors, an ecstatic theology of nature. While McFaig speaks prophetically of the theology of nature and a nature spirituality, and she does this with various implied hermeneutics, though rarely using the word itself, Corrington's seminal work is subtitled On the Hermeneutics of Nature and the Bible 
in the American philosophical tradition. The two methods approach the same fundamental task from two angles. This is of greater interest by their marginal relationship to each other. Both are influential in their fields, both attend to nature, and McFaig is cited only in Corrington's latest, A Semiotic Theory of Theology and Philosophy, 2000. While McFaig herself has only read one of Corrington's works, Ecstatic Naturalism, Signs of the World, 1994, Sally McFaig's basic thesis steps out of the philosophical ground of Martin Buber, Emmanuel Levinas, feminist writers, and it lives within the post-structural rendering of postmodern reality as it conceives of the other, not as an object, but rather as a subject. This Buberian I and Thou, which Levinas applied to an extreme degree in ethics, McFaig asserts should be extended to nature. Quote, the present book suggests that a Christian nature spirituality should be based on a subject, subject's model of being, knowing and doing in place of the subject-object model of Western culture. This position, articulated by McFaig, comes from her base of work on metaphor. See her Metaphorical Theology, 1982, and her later Models of God, 1987. Likewise, Corrington's position is equally based upon a definite linguisticality that can be traced back to structuralist thinkers such as Ferdinand de Saussure. In fact, it has been previously noted explicitly the relationship of McFaig's work to the semiology and the linguisticality of metaphor in Saussure by Grace Jansen. Not only that, but Jansen further outlines how this metaphorical theology in McFaig implies certain psychoanalytic relationships. Here, my essay finds a link again to Corrington, who emphasizes the psychoanalytic component in semiotics and naturalism. Note, Grace Jansen, in Becoming Divine, page 185, notes the Levinas connection found in McFaig, as well as considering Lacan's influence. Jansen offers a rich perspective on the gender aspects and linguistic facets. McFaig's hermeneutics can then be read as urging a radical re-envisioning of the self in a transfigured relationship to the natural world. The natural world as subject, not as object, and the natural world not being limited to the finite resources of the planet, but including, it seems, the metaphysical underpinnings of creation and what it means to be alive, human, and furthermore, Christian. Where McFaig's later work moves from hermeneutics of metaphor and language to ecology in The Body of God, 93, Supernatural Christians, 1997, and eventually economics, Life Abundant, 2001, Corrington begins with nature and biblical hermeneutics in The Community of Interpreters, 1987, moves into nature, nature and spirit, 1992, nature's religion, 1997, ecstatic naturalism, 1994, and proceeds into psychoanalytic readings in A Semiotic Theory of Theology and Philosophy, 2000, where McFaig becomes concerned about the functional and economic living of people in the world, Corrington turns to the psychological and metaphysical to supplement the human ability to experience a reality of naturalism. Additionally, while McFaig sustains a balanced position of panentheism, Corrington eventually makes the full move in his writings to a pantheist position, a movement 
that it seems, given the direction of McFaig's work, is avoided by her engagement with economics. Were her course to have remained explicitly, or primarily rather than secondarily, concerned with metaphysics, she may have proceeded as well into pantheism. And I should note on this point that Sally McFaig disagreed with me. McFaig's resistance of pantheism is worth noting. Not only does Corrington enter this realm, but Jansen also argues for pantheism as the ultimate solution to rebalance gender and create the possibility of what she calls a feminine symbolic imaginary of natality with the fortitude to counterpoint the Western masculine imaginary, which she sees as necrophilic, divisive, and having dominated the entirety of language, thus disabling any possibility for female language at all. Corrington, at least, agrees with Jansen's recognition of the need for powerful correction on the male transcendentalism that I think it is safe to say is connected with everything else in the male symbolic of the Western world. At the same time, Kevin Hart, with his inclusion of Derrida in similar dialogues, advocates, if not for pantheism, for the eradication of metaphysics from theological talk altogether. This all facilitates a powerful dialogue between the pantheisms developing in the semiotic post-structuralism of Corrington as well as Jansen's feminist philosophy of religion, and McFaig's sustained inclusion of the transcendental against post-structural and auto-theological critique, as we see in Hart and Corrington. For my concerns, reading a spiritual direction into the above views and texts, the subtle discourses between McFaig and Corrington allow for, as I will show, a significant re-envisioning of the spiritual life in our world. 3. Movement in Nature Nature is a flow from the imperceptible, only intuited, pre-categories and the pre-semiosis of spirit in nature-naturing into the physically perceptible orders of relevance in the world. All of this Sally McFaig rightly names the body of God. This flow and process of continuous meaning, creation, evolution, is significant as we direct our lives informed by both external phenomena and internal perceptions and intuitions. Concerning the continuity and flow of nature and meaning within time, Corrington notes the similarities between Peirce's semiotic metaphysics and Henri Bergson's later epistemological assertions about this as regards realism and nominalism. Note, realism and idealism both go too far. It is a mistake to reduce matter to the perception which we have of it, a mistake also to make of it a thing able to produce in us perceptions, but in itself of another nature than they. Matter, in our view, is an aggregate of images. This conception of matter is simply that of common sense. Henri Bergson, Matter and Memory. Thus, a spiritual direction within this would deny both ultimate reliance on a personal interpretive experience and also external categories or directives. Direction would then require a balance where the external communal reality or knowledge requires validation through a subjective perceptual understanding. In Peirce, Bergson and through Corrington, 
is the affirmation of a need for natural harmony to be maintained only through a media, both meanings intended, of the semiotic and pre-semiotic. Though particularly within a culture of semiotic obsession, pre-semiotic sensitivity in the human imaginary is a marginal desire. Note, this is really an assumption in the most post-structural semiotic theories. In Western consumer economics, there is an obsession with the sign and the desire for it to possess a meaning beyond the external appearance. For Lacanian views of this, you should see Slavoj Žižek's On Belief, On Belief in the Thinking in Action series. Derrida's critique of dualisms validly emphasizes an imbalanced reliance on both deontologies, Kantian categories, and singular tyrannies of meaning. See Jacques Derrida de la Grammatologie. Meaning and direction are neither categorically exclusive, hence acontextual, neither are they singular a priori, hence non-pluralistic. Spiritual direction is therefore a holy, natural, holistic endeavor, without exclusion of the innumerable orders of relevance. This grand participation and interaction is spirit, or, in conciliar Christian thought, the spirit of God but perhaps more daringly called the God-Spirit. We live within the God-Spirit that is nature. Understanding movement in nature indicates a special process and movement in the human orders. Moreover, will be seen to imply a tremendous shift in spirituality from modern to postmodern modes. Objecting with Jacques Derrida to what he bemoans as the metaphysics of presence and acknowledging pre-semiotic Cora in Kristeva or Cora in Derrida, from which spring the manifest orders of relevance, the visible, natural world, this womb, only one possible meaning of Plato's use of the Greek Cora, facilitates the initial and potential movement, meaning and transfiguration of any sign. Then... Between sign emergence from the underconscious of nature, this presemiosis and the sign's attainment of its lost object, spirit and transfiguration of significance occur. Corrington, like Derrida, is noting the ontological difference between signifier and signified. However, and this is where Derrida is reticent at best, in Corrington, the spirit within nature is given life in this difference. Something unstated, unacknowledged, but I believe nascent in Derrida's difference. What Corrington says is, The pre-semiotic Cora is not itself a place of places, or a position within a series of determinate orders. It is rather the momentum of pulsation that generates an endless stream of signs and symbols. That attempt vainly to fill in the Cora with delimited content the Cora is never positioned or captured by the signs that it ejects from its hidden core. The source of signification remains wrapped in mystery concerning the transfiguration of the sign, its lost object and the place of spirit. The powers of origin participate in the powers of expectation, thereby freeing the sign from a longing that cannot be fulfilled. The sign becomes open to the radical possibility that it's not yet is actually the home of the no longer. 
In a striking sense, the lost object awaits the sign in the future that comes toward it out of expectation. As we will see, this not-yet of the lost object, potency, is the realm of the spirit in which world semiosis finds its true measure. And a deeper dialectic of negativity and repositioning emerges to measure semiosis and to secure new and novel possibilities within the movement of signs. For the direction of humans within this understanding of spirit, there is an urgent emphasis placed on understanding the locatedness of meaning within context, or where humans do and can exist with understanding in the jungle of meanings that is our contemporary Western culture. Our assumptions and certitudes about both meaning and relevance are metaphysically flawed, and this semiotic detail can be seen as heuristic to our greater sense of relationship to the location of all meaning, the world. There is not only a practical conservationist flaw in our treatment and abuse of nature and ecological resources, but there is a metaphysical problem that points to a variance within the nature of being. If any person thus wants any kind of harmony from which experiences such as love, happiness, and such we may think are derived, then realignment with this basic metaphysical positioning is a vital necessity. This, McFaig and Corrington concur, requires a displacement of the human priority in nature and a recentering on nature as the first order of relevance, or, in theological terms, God's first sacrament. As McFaig writes, hence, the movement of the subject's line beyond us to include nature can and should restore nature as a divine sacrament. Corrington and McFaig both appreciate process theology and what it offers. Still, their writings indicate something deeper beyond certain problems. A part of this depth, I believe, comes from their sensitivity to the issues of feminist theory, while process thought asserts movement and change within its philosophical theology, it still struggles with many things. Grace Jansen notes these problems in her feminist argument against the tyranny of gender and for a feminine religious symbolic, beginning from Levinas's and Derrida's critical indictments of all ontotheologies, of which process theology takes part. Quote, However, if as I argued in the previous chapter, such ontotheology prior to an ethics in the face of the other constitutes religion adrift, then for all its attractiveness, process theology cannot be wholeheartedly adopted from a feminist perspective. Moreover, at least in the work of such classical exponents of process thought as Whitehead and more specifically Hartshorn, there would be little sympathy with the idea of the development of a religious symbolic, let alone a feminist symbolic, as contrasted with the task of developing propositions for justified true belief. Furthermore, they show virtually no awareness of the heavily gendered language and assumptions of their work. Grace Jansen, 1999, page 257. It seems to me that Corrington and McFaig are aware of this problem. Therefore, process in their writings moves into the faceted postmodern terrain, where ambiguity is not a problem to be overcome, where anxiety is not an emotion to be reasoned with, and certitude is not a necessity to be achieved. In this terrain, ambiguity can become natural. 
just as the chaos of sign and meaning and text lives within our spirituality. Ecologically, this can be seen ingrained into the very physics of our world of nature-natured. Dermot Omerhu, Irish Roman Catholic priest of the Franciscan order and social psychologist, writes in his Quantum Theology about the role of this chaos and ambiguity. Quote, the theory of chaos draws together many strands of research on the complexities and irregularities inherent in nature. Gone are the days when isolated building blocks were the main target of research and exploration. We now acknowledge that our universe cannot be broken down into a few simple elementary units of matter. Not only is that ultimate simplicity based on false assumptions, but it undermines the very creativity of life that requires complexity as an essential dimension of all living systems. By including this quantum understanding of nature and using it to inform our theology, and more important, our spirituality, Omerhu reveals the direction humans take as we live into this postmodern era of uncertainty and anxiety. This priestly psychologist sustains in us the idea of the natural and healthy role that ambiguity and chaos, a nightmare to modern and enlightenment modalities, holds in our lives. Going back to Corrington, it is this chaos of ontological difference between signs and their lost objects where the spirit exists. Within this constant movement, then, human spirituality exists, thrives, and is natural. Furthermore, there exists no unnatural spirituality, by definition, in my opinion. And there's a fun note here I was given by Sally McFaig saying, Interesting. I think I agree. Anyway, rather, all spirituality is located within nature, and as all spirituality requires spirit, and spirit finds its location in the temporal conundrum or chaos, described semiotically by Corrington, natural human spirituality then lives in chaos, in uncertainty, in the ontological difference between sign and meaning. Movement and nature are altogether the defining and operative components in the spirit of human living. Another way this may be said is that it is this panentheistic natural world where all people live and move and have their being, a scripture frequently cited by McFaig. McFaig considers this momentum in Christian nature spirituality when she regards it as praxis, that is, a reflective practice. And the reflectivity enables continuity of flow, necessitates dynamism, also creating uncertainty, and therefore involving the life-giving spirit within chaos to be a part of the living human experience. 4. The Mystical Nature and World Moving from the double notions of the wealth of hermeneutic insight supplied by the texts of McFaig and Corrington, keeping in mind their adjuncts and corollary thinkers, and the preceding grasp of the ubiquity of spirit in nature and spirit in nature, the two completely interwoven as one, with its elements of chaos and dynamism, a mysticism emerges. Mysticism which we classically define as direct revelation of God in human persons, has been a displaced and unpopular practice post-enlightenment. Regardless of major studies, especially in the philosophy of mysticism, T. Highwell Hughes, 1937, 
William James' renowned work, Varieties of Religious Experience, 1914, and even earlier, Evelyn Underhill's Mysticism, 1911, mysticism has become pushed to the fringe of possibility for human experience. The extreme whiplash of popular culture's post-Enlightenment resistance to mysticism seems to have finally come through the 1960s and achieved prominence in the 1990s New Ageism, which is mysticism with an overabundant dose of solipsism and individualism. While a source isn't really needed for that conclusion, a good source to look at is Mark A. McIntosh, one of the best mystical theologians, in his book Mystical Theology, Oxford, Blackwell, 1998. This is not the mysticism that as Mark McIntosh says, is the medium in which the structure of reality and our knowledge of reality are held together and known in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Within the contexts and texts studied in this essay, a mysticism is close at hand. More than even being imminent, mysticism within the models and ideas of Corrington and McVeigh is, I think, embedded and interwoven into the human structure. This immediacy, this up-closeness and presence of God, spirit, Macintosh sees as explaining the apophatic. He says, Yet apophatic mysticism ought not to be thought of as something undertaken by people who are absorbed in the unutterable remoteness of God. On the contrary, apophasis happens because, like Moses and the burning bush, Persons have been drawn so close to the mystery that they have begun to realize how beautifully, appallingly, heartbreakingly mysterious God really is. In Corrington's semiotic language, this may be said, Through the nearness of infinite semiosis with nature natured, the underconscious of nature whispers significations of the pre-semiotic horizons, the nature naturing, the cora of spirit and nature's continuous creativity. McFaig does not use this language, but the validity of Macintosh's remarks, I believe, are amenable to her theology, and the urgency to tie the apophasis of mysticism to the ubiquity and priority of nature, which Macintosh does not see as important. In Corrington, she would support. So given this, what direction do we take spiritually? And she did note that she does agree, so that's lovely. Having still in mind the Gadamerian hermeneutics that unite the understanding event to the application, thus epistemology to morality, of a person in life, the essential task is to educate. It is in our enlightenment conceptions of nature and God, the animating and life-giving spirit, that have exploited the general human economy and therefore spirituality. Here, McFaig's latter work, Life Abundant speaks loudly to the modern day, where Corrington primarily continues to address the metaphysics. McFaig enters the realm of economy as the next step from ecology, as Corrington chose to enter the psychoanalytic. Reimagining an ecological economics is a vital task of those who would conduct and direct themselves spiritually in a metaphysics and postmodern worldview such as the one I have considered. A spirituality that takes seriously the ubiquity of nature and the interpenetration of spirit in nature must be an embodied and incarnate spirituality. McFaig's subject-subjects model from her supernatural Christians is not alone in declaring this. 
From other disciplines and from different angles, similar urgent claims are made. A personal favorite voice to let speak to any situation today is Slavo Žižek. Žižek says simply, crucial here is the interdependence of man and nature. By reducing man to just another natural object whose properties can be manipulated, what we lose is not only humanity, but nature itself. That's from Slavo Žižek, Organs Without Body, on Deleuze and Consequences, 2004. So the danger of not shifting our paradigms, our spiritualities, to the kind of visions suggested by McFaig and written into a new metaphysics by Corrington is severe, even fatal. Beyond the human scope to the planetary consequence, the results of not transforming human spiritual direction in the ways that are considered within an ecological economy and an ecstatic naturalism are dire. Likewise, both are necessary. The ecological economy will never occur within a Western male religious symbolic that transcendentalizes God and infuses a necrophilic imaginary into every semiotic order. And here's an interesting side note uh, from Sally McFaig. Unless one equates transcendent with male, imminent with female, one need not see reconstructive theological work as primarily about gender. Corrington and Jansen seem to be saying that all understandings of these are male, hence panentheism is necessary. I don't agree which is a consideration that really formed my final work and thesis, which became my book, The Ethics of Understanding God, incorporating some of these critiques into nuances of final thought. Jansen's cry for a symbolic of natality asserts the pantheist tendency and metaphysics of Corrington, all of which are attempting to relocate Western male culture into a framework of nature being sustained, and recognizing that this includes us humans, our mysticism cannot be solipsism, but can and ought to emerge as a mature spirituality that grows from a reconceptualizing of metaphysics and theology, both imagined within naturalism or, as Jansen says, a natal symbolic imaginary that is necessarily economic in scope. 5. Conclusions Reconsidering my introduction, given that all signs exist within a matrix that is alive, and that all signs find their meaning and are dependent for meaning upon other signs. Furthermore, since all signs are alive within a dynamism of meaning and their meaning is not fixed and not only contributes to but establishes reality, we need to change our signs. The signs that we have are not supporting. They are not in alignment with a sustainable and flourishing world for human life or for any life. Here, Gadamer's assertion about understanding being united to not only interpretation but application is seen again in new light. It is within the semiotic orders of nature. It is due to the signs that we choose to use to understand the world and represent ourselves to it that we act as we do. Choosing differently the signs we live by is now a life and death matter, something we should know. In a culture so dominated by signs, by the logo and insignia of transnational corporations that are occasionally more powerful than government bodies, we ought to have realized this signifying power, 
But of course, the recognition of semiotic potency on a global scale does not always translate to a possible empowerment in the personal horizon. Here, within the personal horizon, is where the signs must first change. Given the complexity of psychoanalytic and semiotic depth within each person's innumerable sign orders, who can say how this should be for each of us? But change is at least one certitude, and if certitude is too tyrannical, then necessity. Human and planetary life depends on a change in our personal signifying orders as our basic, fundamental, and most necessary human work. What is the human work? What is it for? Where is the eschatology in all of this? What I shall say brings us back to the beginning of this and the awakened and reawakening that is necessitated by the mediated nature of human reality and experience of God. The purpose of human work is to show the glory of God, according to St. Teresa of Avila. The glory of God is, as St. Irenaeus says, every creature fully alive. It should perhaps not be comical in the least that saints have suggested the very human way of right living that we are still having to promulgate and prophesy over a thousand years later, in Irenaeus's case. That is, the fulfilling of basic needs for every life form must be the concern of every human being. While utopian idealism is neither the aim nor realistic outcome, there seems to be no other way to interpret and act that will achieve this goal of the glory of God in our postmodern semiotic horizon and in our need for an ecological economy for life today. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now, hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk.